that's always something that speaks to my heart. Perhaps it speaks to yours as well. If you have your Bibles with you today, I invite you to turn them to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 11 32 today. It's a very well-known story in the New Testament that Jesus tells. You might know it as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, I like to call it the parable of the loving father. So we'll get to the, the text after a little bit of a setup for our uh, time this morning. Many people have uh, a view of God like this, that God only loves us when we're good, that God only loves us when we're good, that uh, this implies a love that's conditional, a love that depends on how God feels about us. Uh, could you Im imagine a married couple and they only loved each other based upon how they felt? Well, I imagine half the time they wouldn't feel very much like loving because we don't always feel like it. I'm glad that we have a God who loves us unconditionally. And uh, it reminds um, this, this on again, off again uh, way of, of understanding God's love is, is problematic. And it reminds me of something that we used to do when we were kids. And some of you might have done this too. We would get a, a flower like a daisy and we, we would say, uh, she loves me, pluck, pluck off a petal. She loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not. And we would just hope that, there were, that the, it would land on, she loves me. I did a little research, and this is called the decision of the flower. It's a European uh, tradition. But how many people view God like this? How many people ha have a, a daisy? God loves me. God loves me not. God loves me. God loves me not. And they just hope that it lands on God loves me. They just hope that they've been good enough or have been religious enough to get God to love them. James Bryan Smith, the author of the book, The Good and Beautiful God, that we've been using as a framework during this message series, writes this. It is as if God is in a swivel chair, looking at us, smiling when we keep our minds, hands, and hearts pure. But the moment that we sin, God turns his back on us. And the only way to get God to turn back to us is by resuming our good behavior. And he he helps us to see that when we view God in this way that we are applying um, uh, that we are implying that God loves us based upon our performance that we have to go to church and read our Bible and give some money and serve on committees and serve the needy and try not to sin or at least keep it to a minimum so that God will love us. But this is one of the misconceptions that many people have about God. Hence the series that we are in this fall, Misconceptions of God. Throughout Scripture, we see the contrary. We see example after example of God loving people in spite of their flaws, in spite of their sins, in spite of their disobedience. Now, pause. We know that there are consequences when we disobey God. We know that 
when we make choices that are outside of the expectations that God has for us that sometimes things don't go uh, so well. But this does not diminish or negate the love that God has for us. We don't have to prove God's love based on religious performance or other performance that our society so much says we have to do. When we do this, it becomes what we call legalism, where we have to attempt to earn God's favor upon us or avoid God's punishment through certain religious activities. And that's not what Jesus shows us in Scripture. Jesus dealt with this head on as he faced the scrutiny and the criticism from the Pharisees and the scribes who were among the religious authorities in Judaism in that day. If, if you will listen to the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 15, uh, which set up the parables that Jesus taught. Now, the tax collector and sinners, this is verse 1 of chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So as we listen to the parable of the prodigal or the loving father, however you would like to understand it, as you listen to that, uh, listen to it in this context that Jesus is, is receiving heavy criticism for dining with tax collectors and sinners and then tells a series of parables to these people who are giving him the criticism. He had, he had faced incredible scrutiny for being at table with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, back in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, we hear this. This, this. this helps frame it out as well. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large number or a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, the main issue that these religious leaders had with Jesus was that he ate with sinners and tax collectors. To eat around the table with a person in Jesus' day was a sign of uh, full acceptance. That Jesus would sit around the table and eat with tax collectors and sinners who were among the worst unclean people in Jewish society meant that Jesus welcomed them at his table. He accepted them, perhaps not the behavior, but he welcomed them at the table. And Jesus was persecuted for that. This infuriated the religious leaders. And he responds 
as you see in our text, by telling them a series of stories. Parables were stories that were told along other teachings to help illustrate spiritual truth. And in Luke chapter 15, he tells the parable of a lost sheep, of a lost coin, and then the lost son. And we'll focus on the third one today. Let's, um, let's hear the, the words now of, of the parable of the loving father. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. You might say once upon a time, there was a man who had two sons. Verse 11. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property among them. And I'll pause there. And just to help you to see in the culture, uh, the younger son of, of the younger of the two sons generally would have received one third of the inheritance, the older son two thirds. And it was not the nicest thing to do to ask your father for your share of the inheritance, but it happened. And when it did happen, it was granted. And in this case, the father granted the younger son's request. It would have been very difficult for the father to do that because when the younger son said dad I want my share of the inheritance he's basically saying I wish you were dead so that I could go ahead and get my money now it was a total disrespect but the father granted the request he divided his property between them I don't know how long it would have taken I imagine it would have taken a good while because we're talking financial assets um, buildings, perhaps livestock, uh, land, and other assets that would have gone into uh, comprising the entire value of the estate. But he divided it nonetheless. And then in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Notice it just says wild living it. Uh, Luke does not describe exactly what that is. He leaves it up to our imagination. In verse 30, the older brother makes some insinuations on what that is. But the, the uh, verse here, verse 13, says it was wild living. And so we just want to make sure that we don't allow the older brother to color what we understand happened to the younger son. Verse 14, after he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The bottom had fallen out. And he, as a Jew, would have been in an environment that was reserved for Gentiles. He was in in a pig farm and he was eating pods which were the food that the pigs ate and also the lowest of the poor ate he was humiliated and no one gave him anything and then verse 17 when he came to his senses it's it's as if you know you might have been in a situation like this where you've you've done some things that you later regret and you the holy spirit convicts your heart and you come to your senses and then you begin to uh, think about how can I make things better? How can I get 
back to a place where I was before. So he came to his senses and he said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the young man, he goes through this um, prayer and then he gets up and he went to his father. And then continuing in verse 20, while he was still a long way off, you could just imagine what this would have looked like, what it would have been like uh, to see it happen. While he was still a, a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And then, and then he says, and then the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's just totally placed himself at the mercy of the father. He deserved whatever punishment was coming to him. But then the father did something totally unexpected. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The best robe. This would have signified honor for the youngest son, which, was, which belonged to the oldest son. And then he says, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There began to be a party. So you see the robe uh, signifying honor, a signet ring signifying authority. Uh, the father in the story, uh, perhaps a, a person of authority in the community would use a signet ring to seal a document much like we use a notary seal to seal a document today. Uh, and, and then he puts shoes on his feet. And in this culture, slaves were barefoot, but household servants had shoes. And so his son comes home barefoot as a slave. And, and the father says, put shoes on this young man because he's part of my household. And throw a party, slaughter the, the, the fatted calf. And they began to have a party. And then here's where the transition in the story happens in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come home, the servant replied, and your father he, he celebrated, he's so excited that he said, slay the fattened calf and, uh, because this son of mine is back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. And then just as the father went out into the road to wait on the wayward son who was gone for so long, the father went out and pleaded with the older son. Could you imagine it would have been like this? Son, please come to the party. Why are you out here? Please come to the party. Your brother's home. It's the least you could do. But the, the, the older son answered the father. Look. All these years I've been serving you and I've never disobeyed your orders. 
yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Sounds like resentment for whatever reason, bottled up inside against his father, all came pouring out. And you never did that, any of this for me. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you fill the you kill the fattened calf for him. What's with that? The older brother sounds like the Pharisees who are criticizing Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And now the older brother is criticizing his father for having a celebration for the younger son. And then the father in the story replies, My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. When did that cease to be true? But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. This story helps me to see that God relentlessly pursues a relationship with us. We see two things happening here. First, the younger brother, he had gone far away. He went far away and he was lost. And yet the father went out to meet him. He was far away and he was lost. The older brother stayed home and was just as lost. God's love is steadfast. God's love is unchanging. Never forget that. Whether you and I go far away from God and are lost and we come home begging for mercy or whether we stay home and are just as lost in our self-righteousness and in our pride and in our works, God steadfastly pursues a love relationship with us. God's love is steadfast and unchanging. Philip Yancey, the writer of a book called What's So Amazing About Grace, reminds us of this. He tells the story of Karl Barth, the theologian who was visiting the University of Chicago Students and scholars crowded Dr. Bart, and one of them asked him a question at a press conference. Dr. Bart, what's the most profound thing that you have learned in all of your studies? What's the most profound thing? And Dr. Bart, uh, without hesitating, turned to the person who asked the question and said, it is this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me God's love is relentless and steadfast and unchanging. A pastor was battling with his 15-year-old daughter. She was making a lot of poor choices. Sometimes she would not even come home at night. The pastor and his wife tried all sorts of punishment. Nothing worked. She had lied. 
She had twisted things. She found a way to turn the tables against them and make them feel like they were responsible for her choices. It's your fault for being so strict. And in the same book, what's amazing about grace, Philip Yancey says, the pastor said, I remember standing before the plate glass window in my living room, staring out into the darkness, waiting for her to come home. I felt such rage. I wanted to be like the father of the prodigal son, yet I was so furious with my daughter for the way that she would manipulate us and twist us and twist things around. She was hurting herself more than anyone. I, I, I totally understood the passages and the prophets of old about God's anger, that people knew how to wound God and, gr- and God cried out in pain. And yet he says to Yancey, I must tell you, when my daughter came home that night, or rather the next morning, I wanted nothing more than in the whole world to take her in my arms and to love on her and to tell her that I wanted the best for her. I was a, a, a help-sick, lo- a helpless, lovesick father to my daughter. A helpless, lovesick father. And I believe that is the picture that Jesus paints to the Pharisees and the scribes as they criticized him for dining with sinners and tax collectors. In this picture, Jesus reveals to us a God who loves both the sinful and the self-righteous. God loves both those who have gone far away and are lost and those who stayed home and who are just as lost. And as Jesus tells us in the story of the loving father who had two prodigal sons, he went out to both. He went out to both. That the father embraced the younger did not mean the rejection of the older. The love of the tax collector and the sinners does not negate the love of the Pharisees and the scribes. God is like the loving father in this story. God's like that. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Let's pray together.